What you're about to listen to is the final part of a four-part series about the Jacobite Wars, the 45, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and the Battle of Culloden. If you haven't listened to any of the previous parts, not a lot of this is going to make sense to you, so that's what I advise. If you're all caught up, on with the show. The year, 1746. The place, Culloden Moor, Scotland. The last battle of the 45, the last stand of the Highland clans, is here. It is the death of a culture and the birth of a legend. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 14, The Jacobite Wars Part 4, The Stones of Culloden. I'm your host, James Hauser, and today, guys, this is the day we wrap things up. Today, we're going to conclude the story of the Jacobite Wars and the 45 with the Battle of Culloden and its aftermath. But since I'm not a complete jerk, right, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap. Remember what happened in the last three episodes. The last Stuart King of England, James II, was overthrown by his daughter Mary and her husband William in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. James and his family were forced into exile, and their efforts to regain the throne became known as the Jacobite Cause. It was the Jacobites versus the New Order, the political and economic transformation that the Glorious Revolution had created. In 1745, James II's grandson, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, known to legend as Bonnie Prince Charlie, landed in Scotland, rallied the Highland clans, and defeated the British army at the Battle of Preston Pans. But disagreements in the Jacobite High Command plagued the uprising from the outset, and they lost their best chance for victory when they retreated from the winter invasion of England. The Jacobites won another victory at Falkirk in January 1746, but failed to follow up their triumph. Against Charlie's wishes, the Jacobite army decided to retreat into the Highlands, pursued closely by the British army of William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland. And that is where we left off, so if you don't remember any of that, you may want to listen to the last couple episodes. So if you haven't, I'll give you the chance to go back and check that out. Three, two, one. If you're here, super. So let's go. If you didn't know, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. The content is not. All my sources for the whole series will be posted on my website, so you can fact check me if you want to. Finally, all errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. There is a place. Six miles from the northern Scottish city of Inverness, about a 14-minute drive, you'll start to see signs for it. You can park it at the visitor center and take the sidewalks into the open field. You can see the red flags marking one battle line and yellow flags marking the other. There are plenty of historical plaques and signs and markers all around to tell you what happened where. Today, the field is quiet. There are weeds and heather all around. To the southeast, you can see the mountains. To the north, maybe you can smell the sea breeze. Now look down. Scattered throughout the field, arranged before a great cairn, are a number of small stones. And if you get a little closer, 
You can read the words engraved on them. Clan Fraser, Clan Cameron, Clan Stewart of Appen, Clan Mackintosh, Clan Donald, Clan Campbell, Clan McLean. And it's just as likely that you'll see flowers, mementos, or white ribbons near these stones. It's not a place for selfies or a place for TikTok videos, and many Scots will get very angry if you try. This is a place of mourning. Culloden Battlefield Park is one of the best preserved, if not the best preserved, battlefields in all of Britain. It's something like a British equivalent to Gettysburg in America, and how important, sacred, and monumental it is. How much it represents to so many people. It was a place of pilgrimage long before the Visitor Center opened in 2008. In 1846, on the 100th anniversary of the battle, at least 3,000 people, including many schoolchildren, came from all around to sit by the cairns or tell the stories of their ancestors. Only in the 1880s, though, did it come to be memorialized by the Great Highland Cairn and the Clan Stones, which were, irony of ironies, laid down by Duncan Forbes, descendant of the man who did so much to defeat the 45. The stones of Culloden Moor mark the final resting place of as many as 1,500 warriors of their various clans. But they also represent the death of a way of life, of a culture, of a society that vanished in the 30 minutes of combat that took place there 275 years ago. It was here that the Highland clans made their last charge. And it was here that not just their cause, but the Jacobite cause, and for some people the Scottish cause, died. Culloden is like Gettysburg, too, because of the myths, legends, and stories that have grown up around it. Both battles have taken on an importance far beyond their actual impact. There was the drama, the saga, the personalities, the epic tragedy, what they meant, what they symbolized, what people saw in the story. How we remember our history is at least as important as the history itself. Culloden's passage into myth and memory and how that mythology shaped the world we live in today represents the final chapter in our story of the 45. A lot lies beneath the unquiet stones of Culloden. Today, we will finish the story we began three weeks ago. We will see the British army and the Jacobite army prepare for the final struggle for the future of Britain. We will witness the Battle of Culloden and its aftermath. We will put the Jacobite cause to rest and we will watch how cultural memory transformed Prince Charles the 45 and the Highlanders into the Scottish national legend. And at the end of the day, I will tell you why this entire story matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why today. Grab your targe and your broadsword, adjust your tartan one last time, and let's finish the campaign. Now, where were we? We left off in Scotland, and I'm going to backtrack just a few minutes, rewind just a little bit, because I know it's been a week, and you may have forgotten exactly where we were. After winning the Battle of Falkirk Muir in the teeth of a winter storm, the Jacobite army failed to follow up on its victory due to the never-ending reality show that was their high command. This disagreement reached a new low point when Lord George Murray declared that they needed to retreat to the Highlands to gather supplies and recruits for the winter. 
Despite Prince Charles's objections, the Jacobite army abandoned the Siege of Stirling and most of their heavy guns in a very disorganized withdrawal. The Jacobites marched north on February 2nd, 1746, with the British army following in their footsteps like hungry wolves stalking wounded prey. The first problem the Jacobites faced was that they needed a new base of operations. By retreating to the highlands, they would be forced to abandon the northeast lowlands, the heavily Episcopalian area that both provided most of their recruits and contained all the major ports where they received French support. So they decided that they would march on Inverness, the largest town beyond the highland line, and make that their new base camp. Since Charles and Murray could not get enough distance between them because they were still behaving like toddlers, Murray decided to take the Lowland Division up the east coast of Scotland to gather supplies and recruits on his way out the door. Charles, on the other hand, would take the Highland Division north and march straight for Inverness. Inverness, often known as the capital of the Highlands, was currently occupied by an army of 2,000 pro-government Highlanders under John Campbell, Earl of Loudoun, and largely recruited by Duncan Forbes. Remember, they've been hanging up here for the last two episodes. This had been their base of operations ever since the rebellion broke out. Forbes had been using every means at his disposal to keep the Northern Highlands on the side of the government, and boy had he done his job. Thousands of clansmen who might have fought for Charlie stayed neutral or even joined the Hanoverian cause. Whatever he was offering them, whether it was money, power, or free t-shirts, it was working and Charles decided that Forbes and Loudon had to go. Loudon heard that Charlie's Highlanders were headed his way and prepared to defend Inverness, but then he learned something very interesting. A local informant told him that the prince was staying at a nearby house called Moy Hall, with only a couple of bodyguards. It was the perfect opportunity for a surprise attack. Loudon snuck out of Inverness with a large force, hoping to surprise and capture the young pretender in his sleep. But a 14-year-old waitress overheard a couple of officers talking about the plot, and she passed the word to a local widow named Lady McIntosh. She sent word to Charles, so the prince fled into the darkness, still dressed in his nightgown. And this is February in Scotland, so it was cold. At the same time, Lady McIntosh sent the local blacksmith, Donald Fraser, and four other men to watch the road to Moy. When the enemy approached, the men yelled back and forth, pretending to call out to a much larger force before firing a few shots. Loudon's men immediately panicked and ran back to Inverness like they were teenage girls in a horror movie. God, how embarrassing. The only casualty of this little encounter was Donald Van McCrimmon, the most famous bagpiper in Scotland, who had been playing for Loudon's army. Yeah, the most famous bagpiper in Scotland was playing for the government. But even the Jacobites mourned the King of Pipers. This little encounter, known to history as the Rout of Moy, was a big boost to Jacobite morale and demoralized the government Highlanders. Since their forces apparently had the backbone of gas station sushi, Loudon and Duncan Forbes decided to evacuate Inverness. They didn't even fight for it. They retreated north and set up behind a body of water called the Dornoch Firth, which they thought could protect them. Charles's Highlanders captured Inverness on February 18, 1746, and Murray joined them there a few days later. The retreat to the Highlands was complete. As the Jacobites withdrew, the British followed. The Duke of Cumberland followed Murray's troops up Scotland's eastern coast. But on February 28th, the British occupied Aberdeen, and Cumberland called for a halt so the exhausted British army could rest. 
the Jacobites were left to their own devices for now. Cumberland began to prepare for the campaign that was sure to come in the spring. He ordered supplies by sea from Edinburgh and London, and soon the battered units of Falkirk were being restored to full health. His secretary reported to London that, Our troops are in exceeding good condition. Their fruitless marches under Marshal Wade in the dead of winter had quite worn them down, but they have recovered strength as well as spirit by the rest they have had here. Since the Duke's departure from Edinburgh, at least 1,000 recovered men joined the army from the hospitals. Cumberland rebuilt the army's confidence through good food, good supply, and good training. One of his subordinates, General Humphrey Bland, was the British Army's doctrinal mastermind. He had literally written the book on drill regulations and tactics back in 1727, and now the soldiers trained in the most up-to-date combat methods. One new trick that Cumberland and Bland introduced involved the bayonet. Traditionally, the British soldier was trained to stab directly forward into his opposite number with the point of the bayonet. Hey, see the guy in front of you? Stab him. But in this new drill, Cumberland taught his troops to stab diagonally to the right. Since the charging Highlander carried the small target shield or targe that could block the bayonet's thrust, this new drill, the diagonal thrust instead of the straightforward thrust, would skewer the next man in line as he raised his arm to strike with the broadsword. Now, historians like to make a lot of out of this, like this is the secret weapon that defeated the Highlanders, but I don't think it was that important, even though it's mentioned all the time. It's like, oh, we've innovated the tactics to defeat the Highlanders. Okay, most Jacobites weren't even using the targe by the Battle of Culloden anyway. They'd thrown them aside because it was heavy and not that useful. And second, there's no real historical record of this new tactic being used as intended at all. But even if the tactic wasn't that effective, the point was that it built up confidence. It made the Redcoats think, maybe I can stand up to a Highland charge after all. Battle, warfare, combat is a good, decent part psychological. And maybe this psychological edge was more important than the actual application of the tactic itself. Maybe it was just what the British Army needed. Even as Cumberland's army rebuilt itself and trained for combat, he was already unleashing retribution on the rebellious northeastern lowlands. British units were already carrying out harsh suppression on the Episcopalian areas of Scotland, burning houses, villages, and churches. In March, British ships on the western coast of Scotland carried out deadly raids across the Cameron and Macdonald lands, bringing fire and sword to the rebellious Highlanders. This devastation was a preview a, uh, a signal of what was to come after the Battle of Culloden. While the British were training, the Jacobites stayed busy. Charlie set up his headquarters in Inverness to organize the war effort, and the Jacobite army said, hey, let's split up, gang. Units broke off to all points of the compass to carry out small-scale operations. I call them side quests, as February turned into March and March turned into April. But the narratives of success I'm about to show you is deceptive because while the Jacobites won every small military engagement they fought, none of these brought them closer to victory. These were all successful battles, but it wasn't a successful war. In the West, Donald Cameron of Lochiel and his Clan Cameron units tackled the Highland forts, Fort Augustus on Loch Ness and Fort William on the west coast of the Highlands, which the British had held from the beginning of the 45. These two little Highland forts had always been up here, being a constant nuisance to the Jacobite clans. 
Fort Augustus was taken on March 1st, largely thanks to the Jacobite artillery expert, Colonel James Grant. But Fort William was another matter. It could be supplied by sea, it was just much better constructed, it was better defended, and Colonel Grant was wounded by a British cannonball early in the operation. The siege of Fort William dragged on into April, with no sign of victory. In the north, the, the enemy Highland force under the Earl of Loudoun and Duncan Forbes thought they were safe behind the Dornoch Firth. But on March 20th, the Duke of Perth led a surprise amphibious assault across the Firth with a makeshift force of fishing boats. Perth's attack was one of the most successful military operations of the whole war. The pro-government Highlanders were taken by surprise, routed, and Loudoun and Forbes withdrew with their remaining forces to the Isle of Skye. The North seemed to be secure. Lord George Murray led his Athol Brigade to the southeast. In March 1746, with about 700 men, he led a daring raid into his home region of Athol near Perth, including the siege and bombardment of his own family's estate at Blair Castle. His main opposition in this fight was a force of Hessian mercenaries that the British government had brought in to block any Jacobite breakout from the Highlands. Wait, James, did you say Hessians? Oh yeah. Great Britain was in the habit of hiring German mercenaries from the continent long before the American Revolution, especially when there was a national emergency. The Hessians weren't super psyched to be over here fighting British rebels, though, when the real war was taking place on the continent, and Cumberland never put them in his main army. All these little engagements, the rout of Moy, the siege of the Highland Forts, the assault on Dornoch, the Athol Raid, were all Jacobite victories. They all were all successful operations for the most part. Very nice, very cool. One big problem. The Jacobites couldn't afford to waste time and energy on side quests. Their army was falling apart. They were running out of food for one simple reason. If you remember my short round about the Highland clans, you know that the Highlands are already on the verge of starvation all the time. They didn't control any more major cities, they didn't control the agricultural areas. The poverty of the Highlands just could not support the Jacobite army. The captured government stocks of food at Inverness could only support the army for a few days if it came together. So Jacobite forces had to split up, roaming the Highlands looking for something to eat. Money and other supplies were running short too. By retreating into the Highlands, the Jacobites had condemned their army to gradual attrition and starvation. Even if their enemies did nothing, the 45 would dissolve on its own in a matter of months. This situation was only made worse in late March, when a ship carrying supplies from France ran aground and was captured by members of the pro-government clan Mackay. This ship had been carrying 13,600 pounds in English gold, which was vital because the soldiers hadn't received their paychecks in weeks. The Jacobites were out of money, and not getting paid is the opposite of motivation for anyone in any age. The loss of this gold made Charles so desperate that he sent a force of 1,500 men to go get it back. These men would be sorely missed in a few days because they would be absent for the Battle of Culloden. So the Jacobites were backed into a corner, their morale was already low after the retreat to the Highlands, and now they were starving and broke. All the side quests in the world could not overcome this basic logic, and their enemies were closing in. By early April, the British were ready. 
Cumberland's troops were confident, well-supplied, and well-trained. Reinforcements had arrived, and the spring thaw was almost complete, which meant the roads would be firm and the rivers could be crossed. It was time for the end game. The Duke of Cumberland led 9,000 men out of Aberdeen on April 8, 1746. His force moved carefully, slowly, a great scarlet snake marching along the northern coast of Scotland, trailed by a supply fleet in the bright blue of the North Sea. By April 12th, they were fording the Spey River, and the scattered, surprised Jacobites failed to fight for the river crossing. The Redcoats closed in on Inverness from the east, taking their time, making it very clear what they were doing. The challenge was obvious. The British were looking for a fight. They wanted nothing more than to do battle with the Jacobite army. And the Jacobite army was not ready. Their units were scattered across the highlands on their side quests. Charles's army had been spread over such a broad area that couldn't come back together fast enough in an emergency. He violated one of the main principles of uh, military strategy, concentration of force. Even though all the units were called back and they came as fast as they could, the Jacobites would have to fight their battle with a lot of the army still on the way to the show. It was like starting the concert without the bass player or the lead guitar. Yeah, they could play something, but what would it sound like? This was the price of all those side quests. This was the price of the retreat into the highlands. Even at the very last minute, valuable units were wasting their time hunting for the missing gold or trying to round up a little food. And the high command were still at each other's throats. So Murray's Highland strategy had been a disaster, and now the British were coming. So what should the Jacobites do? In history, just like in real life, it can be really easy to judge decisions after they're made. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, they should have done this, they should have done that, should have turned left, should have turned right, Monday morning quarterbacking. But we have to remember when we judge people that it's not that easy. The decision makers aren't choosing between the obviously better or the obviously worst decision. They don't know what we know. They don't know what the best decision is. And the decision maker here in the end was Prince Charles. Charlie was not in good shape. He had been a bundle of optimistic energy when he landed at Moidart in July 1745, and for a few months he'd been something that comes kind of close to the prince of legend and myth. But his shining personality had been falling apart, and this can really be dated, the start of this, to the decision at Derby. He was grouchy, moody, passive, bedridden with illness all the time. His self-discipline, so amazing during the early days of the uprising, was gone. He was eating a lot, he'd been having affairs, etc. He was increasingly autocratic and stubborn, showing that absolute monarchist tendency that characterized all the Stuarts. For the first few months of 1746, he showed increasing signs of depression and anxiety. The Bonnie Prince Charlie of April 1746 was a completely different person from the young adventurer who had first set foot in Scotland nine months earlier. Charlie had two options, really. Should they stand and fight, or retreat and deny Cumberland the battle he clearly wanted? Like I said, the army was in no condition to fight, but if they retreated into the highlands, Cumberland would capture Inverness, the last city in Jacobite hands, which also contained the most of their food supply. The army, starving and unpaid, would probably just fall apart on its own. So this isn't a good decision versus bad decision situation. The only available options were both bad. Both courses of action seemed hopeless. What would they do? Well, 
you know Charlie. When in doubt, do something. Everyone had said he was wrong to start this uprising, but he had taken the risk and he had proven them wrong. He'd always believed the Jacobite cause had failed over and over because no one was willing to take the risk, to keep the faith, to make the shot. He was determined not to let the moment slip away again like it had at Darby, like it had after Falkirk. Plus, his Highlanders had done the impossible before at Preston Pans and Falkirk. So Charlie decided to put his trust in his men, his cause, and his destiny. Charlie decided to fight. Prince Charles's chief of staff, Colonel John William O'Sullivan, selected an open stretch of ground close to Lord Duncan Forbes' manor, Culloden House. The terrain feature was called Dramasi Moor, but history has always remembered it as Culloden Moor. O'Sullivan believed that the open field would be good clear terrain for the Highland Charge. Lord George Murray hated the battlefield and offered an alternative site near Dalcross Castle. He believed that the open Culloden battlefield would allow the British to use their advantages in artillery and cavalry to the max, and he also asked Charlie to delay fighting for as long as possible to allow more units to come in from the west. Much like the decisions General Lee and his generals made at Gettysburg, historians have debated endlessly over who was right. But Charles and Murray were at the point where they just absolutely hated each other. Guys, get along. This is just getting silly at this point. But Lord George was the man who had said they should retreat from England, then retreat from the Lowlands, and look where that had gotten them. No, Charlie was done listening to Murray. The Jacobites would fight on Culloden Moor. And events would show that Murray had been right. Murray's strategic mistakes were numerous, but he was the best tactician the Jacobites had. His maneuvers had won the battles of Preston Pans and Falkirk, he had directed the small victories at Clifton and Athol, and he understood how to plan a battle. Charlie had always had a better strategic vision than Murray, but he wasn't a tactician, he just didn't have the military experience for it. These two men could never get over their mutual hatred to put the pieces together. They each had two halves of the solution, but they couldn't put them together. So Charles refused to listen to his best general. If Charlie had to pick a fight, he chose to fight on the wrong battlefield on the wrong day. He chose Culloden. The Jacobite army prepared for battle on April 15th, and they could hear Cumberland's army approaching that afternoon. But a few miles away from Culloden Moor, Cumberland stopped his army at Nairn and made camp for the night. The British had learned their lesson from Preston Pans and Falkirk. They were not going to fight the battle until they were nice and ready, thank you very much. Fighting the Highlanders by charging in half prepared had always gone badly, and this time they were taking things seriously. They were not going in overconfident. Plus, it was the Duke of Cumberland's 25th birthday. He had ordered that his troops be given an extra ration of alcohol to celebrate the event, because that's what you do right before a battle in the 18th century. I kind of think, too, about how wild this is. I mean, Cumberland and Charlie are both 25 years old, both princes fighting for the futures of their dynasties. Imagine commanding an army at 25 years old. I mean, in the modern day, you're 25. You just got to the point where you can rent a car, and these guys are leading thousands of men. So as Cumberland made camp, Lord George Murray had an idea. It was their only hope, maybe their last hope, a night attack. A surprise attack on the enemy camp, just like at Preston Pans. 
It had worked before, it could work again. Maybe they'd catch the enemy drunk and off balance, like Washington did to the Hessians at Trenton uh, 30 years later. But when the generals started to round up their troops, they found that many of them were out of ranks, looking for food. The Jacobite army had received one biscuit per man for the entire day of April 15th. That was their ration. Still though, Charles ordered the night attack to go forward. It might be their only chance. Murray set out around midnight with the lead column, followed by Charles with the rear. But as the night went on, many men began to fall out from the march, from hunger and exhaustion. The moonlit night was full of groaning men in tartan, struggling under the weight of their muskets, begging for something to eat. By the time Murray was in position, many of his men had collapsed. He sent word to Charles that the plan had failed, the ambush was hopeless. Charles and his other officers, including Drummond, the Duke of Perth, Donald Cameron of Lochiel, and O'Sullivan, to try and persuade Murray to complete the attack. They engaged in a heated, whispering argument only meters away from the unsuspecting British forces. But Murray, once again, refused to take the risk. His forces were too exhausted and depleted, he said, to carry out the attack. He turned his soldiers around and headed back to Culloden. Charles exploded with anger when he learned of Murray's retreat. I am betrayed. What need have I to give orders when my orders are disobeyed? When he learned that Lochiel had agreed with the decision, he finally decided to turn back, but he ordered his inner circle to have Murray watched 24-7 from now on and to execute him on the spot if they found out that he was a traitor. So yeah, that's how the Jacobite High Command is doing right now. In the pre-dawn hours, all the commanders of the Jacobite army were in yet one more childish argument, bickering and yelling and throwing fits at each other in Duncan Forbes' parlor as their exhausted troops tried to catch an hour or two of sleep outside on the damp grass. Culloden Moor was silent, for now. But in the distance, if you listened closely, you could hear the beat of the drum and the sound of soldiers' cadences. The British were coming. The sun rose on April 16, 1746. Judgment Day was here. The Battle of Culloden was about to begin. The battle is always the climax of the story, isn't it? Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Avengers, you name it. The big confrontation, the moment where everything is decided. And the battle tends to be the centerpiece in history too. It's a natural climax, the most dramatic moment. It's what people want to hear about. Gettysburg, Waterloo, Stalingrad, Iwo Jima, and of course, Culloden. But I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret little secret. Most battles are not the decisive moment in the war. Most battles only confirm a course of events that is already set in motion. The Confederacy was losing before Gettysburg. Napoleon was losing before Waterloo. The Germans were losing before Stalingrad. So when I say the Battle of Culloden wasn't decisive, what I mean was that the 45 was already on its last legs. The Jacobites were losing long before Culloden. And if you listened to last week's episode, you'll, you'll know what I think was the decisive moment. The decision at Derby was the decisive moment of the 45. And in hindsight, 
guys, the battle was only going to end one way. Culloden has been nitpicked to death, just like Gettysburg again, with people arguing over who stood where, which regiment fought where, whether Charles should have done X or Murray should have done Y, whether this unit was facing like 3 degrees left or 3 degrees right. But nothing anybody did on April 16th itself was going to change a few hard facts. The Jacobite army was starving, unpaid, and falling asleep on their feet after the night march. Hundreds of soldiers were out of ranks, just looking for something to eat or completely broken by exhaustion. Their leaders were acting like characters in a bad soap opera. The battlefield's terrain didn't suit Highland tactics. Many of their units were still on the way to the battlefield. They'd been running around on side quests for two months, and morale had been low ever since the retreat from Falkirk. The British, on the other hand, were well-fed, well-supplied, well-rested, and just a little bit happy from last night's birthday party. They liked their commander, and they had confidence in their training. Cumberland was the only one calling the shots in his army, but he and his master tactician, General Humphrey Bland, had a good working relationship. Culloden Moor was a perfect battlefield for their superior artillery and cavalry. Their morale was high, and their discipline was tight. Oh, and there's the small fact that Cumberland had about 9,000 men, and Charlie may have had about 5,000. And that's probably a high number since so many of his units were well under strength. So yeah, that's how things stood before sunrise on April 16th. I make a big deal in this podcast out of the fact that nothing is predetermined, but the Battle of Culloden was as close as anything ever comes to being a done deal, to being inevitable. It's hard to see how it could have gone any other way. But that doesn't mean it wasn't important, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't care. Culloden Moor was a fairly level stretch of open grazing land, wet and deceptively swampy in many places. The northern and southern sides of the moor were constricted by a pair of large stone-walled enclosures, Culloden Parks to the north and Colwiniac Parks to the south, each stone wall enclosing several acres. Spring in Scotland is still very cold, and snow and hail fell early on April 16th. The weather was calmer when the battle began, but it was still a cold, miserable day, with the sun hidden behind the clouds. Near Culloden House, at around 8 a.m., the bagpipes sounded the alert. Cumberland was on his way, and it was time to prepare for battle. The exhausted Jacobite soldiers groaned and rose to their feet, forming up on the moor in a battle line facing northeast. The sun rose over the mountains of the highlands, creating a dim glow over the green, wet grass as the soldiers adjusted their plaids, checked their muskets, and tried to stay warm. Charles delegated the army's deployment to his chief of staff, Colonel O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan deployed the army in two lines. The first line, mostly Highlanders, formed up between the corners of the two stone enclosures. The Duke of Perth commanded the left, Lord John Drummond commanded the center, and Lord George Murray commanded the right. The second line, made up of the Lowlanders and the French regulars, stood back in reserve. There were two big issues with the Jacobite deployment. The first was that there were no Jacobite units actually inside the stone-walled enclosures, and if enemy troops got inside the walls, they could slip behind the Jacobite lines. But everybody would later blame everyone else for this mistake. O'Sullivan, at least, said he ordered Murray to send troops to occupy the enclosure, but Murray pretended that he didn't hear him. Murray said that he suggested doing this, but Prince Charles ignored him. What? Who, who cares? Guys, now, of all times, get along. 
The second big issue was the regiments of Clan MacDonald, who were placed on the left under the Duke of Perth. Now, traditionally, the Clan MacDonald had always had the position of honor on the right flank since the days of Robert the Bruce. That was their ancient privilege, and I mentioned at Preston Pans and Falkirk, they had been on the right flank. But for some reason today, Murray insisted that his Athol Brigade be placed in the position of honor. Charlie was too tired to argue and basically said, sure, whatever. But now a third of the battle line felt insulted and dishonored, in addition to being tired and hungry. The Jacobites stood in this formation, shivering and tired as the British approached. Cumberland's army came into sight at about 11 a.m., and the Redcoats snaked forward as low drum beats echoed off the mountains. When the British were about two miles from the enemy, Cumberland had them form up in battle order. The infantry deployed in two parallel lines facing the Jacobites, with cavalry on either flank. Then the British marched forward, slow and confident. The Jacobite commanders, even Charlie, felt their hearts sink. The silent redcoat steamroller was a far cry from the shaky, nervous army that they had beaten before. One Englishman in the Jacobite ranks, John Daniel, remembered how the two armies acted before the battle. The enemy being by this time in full view, we began to huzzah and bravado them in our march upon us. But notwithstanding all our repeated shouts, we could not induce them to return one. On the contrary, they continued proceeding like a deep, sullen river. Cumberland halted his army 500 meters, or five and a half football fields, away from the Jacobite lines. The redcoats in their gleaming battle lines, bayonets fixed, muskets on their shoulders. The Jacobites, some falling asleep where they stood, their plaids and bonnets wet from the rain. Each side shifted some units around last minute to fill in gaps or tighten up flanks. As the two armies continued to stare each other down across Culloden Moor, spaghetti western style, the minutes ticked by. As the British shuffled around, General Humphrey Bland saw, with his tactician's eye, that Colwiniac enclosure was, uh, unoccupied. Hmm, that's interesting. Wonder what we can do with that. Bland went and told Hangman Hawley, remember him? commanding the cavalry on the left to break into the enclosure and threaten the Jacobite right flank. John Campbell of Ballamore and his battalion of pro-government Highlanders, mostly Campbell clansmen and Argyle militia, broke into the enclosure and the cavalry followed. The pro-government Highlanders and the Redcoat cavalry moved to outflank their enemy, but even as they moved, the battle had begun. The first shots of the Battle of Culloden were fired at 1 p.m when the Jacobite artillery opened up on the British forces. Within minutes, Cumberland's guns responded, so the battle started with a long-range artillery duel. Long-range for the time, I'll be very clear. 500 meters was about the extent of the short-range guns that both sides had, and neither side's shots were very effective. The usual artillery tactic at the time was to try and ricochet cannonballs off the ground at a flat trajectory so they would skip right into the enemy lines, like a bowling alley but with human pins. But the ground was soft from the rain, so the cannonballs just stuck in the mud instead of skipping. The gunners had to aim high, and most of the shots from both sides went over the heads of their targets. But the British gunners began to win the artillery duel. Not only were Cumberland's guns in better shape, and his gunners better trained, but the Jacobite army had never been under serious artillery fire before. They didn't have the discipline to stand under fire and keep their cool the way the British did. It was a new and terrible experience. 
Even Charlie wasn't safe. A British cannonball decapitated the groom holding his horse. Now, some accounts of the Battle of Culloden have the British artillery killing hundreds, even thousands of people before the battle began. But that's not realistic. Battlefield archaeology and forensics don't support that. And the way the ground was, the way the artillery of the time was, at that range they couldn't do much damage at all. But even though 50 Jacobites at most were killed or wounded by the artillery duel, their morale began to sink. They grew restless as the field grew thick with smoke and tension. Where was the order to attack? When would they launch the Highland Charge? It's not nobody's exactly sure why it took so long for the charge to be ordered. Again, everybody blamed everybody else after the battle. Some accounts blame Charlie, saying he was paralyzed by indecision or confused by his first experience commanding the battle. Some people claim that his messengers ordering the attack were hurt or killed by the cannon fire. O'Sullivan claimed that he ordered Murray to charge, but Murray refused to take orders from his arch nemesis. Whatever the case, guys, now, of all times, I really need you to get along. Finally, the regiment of Clan McIntosh couldn't take it anymore. Tired, stressed, unable to withstand the thunder of the guns, they decided to just go for it. To hell with orders. And when they started running forward, the rest of the line jerked into motion as well. The Highland regiments broke into a sprint, huddled bands of men with swords and muskets racing across no man's land, that long line of redcoats in their sights. The Highland charge had been launched, but it was a disjointed, broken assault without any control or coordination. As the Scots ran across the moor, they split into three rough arrowheads, each aiming at a section of the British line. As George Murray's regiments on the right ran past the Colwiniac enclosure, they received a sudden blast of fire from an unexpected direction. John Campbell of Ballamore's Argyle Militia had set up in an ambush position behind the stone wall. Now they put a withering fire into the Jacobite flank, and this brought down dozens of men even as they continued their charge. The Highlanders drew closer and closer to the enemy line, but the fire only grew worse. Because when they were around 200 yards away, the British artillery switched to canister. Canister was a hollow tin casing packed with musket balls, so when it was fired, it turned into something like a big shotgun shell. Every canister round ripped through the massed Highland charge, tearing away pieces of men and tartan like they were going into a storm. I mean, you see this in your head, right? Think about it. How fast can you run 550 yards? Five and a half football fields. How fast can you do it when you're starving, tired, can barely see through the gun smoke, and cannonballs are blasting through your ranks? How do you keep going when your comrades, your friends, your kinsmen are falling around you? But the answer is you have to keep running no matter what. It's like World War I, you're crossing no man's land. The enemy line, that scarlet barrier lies before you and you have to close the distance. About midway across the field, the center arrowhead veered sharply to the right. We're still not sure why, whether it was to avoid a bad patch of boggy ground or to try and escape the brutal canister fire. But either way, they collided with Murray's forces on the right wing, and they all swarmed into one big confused mob, blitzing towards the left of the government line as canister, and now volleys of musket fire, as they drew within a hundred yards, cut them to pieces on the cold open plains of Culloden Moor. As the Scottish tide converged on the government's left flank, two regiments, the 4th Foot and the 37th Foot, 
suddenly realized that they were about to receive the full weight of the Highland Charge. But unlike Preston Pans and Falkirk, they did not run away. They did not retreat. Like men leaning into a strong wind, they braced for impact. Finally, at around 10 to 15 yards, the fourth foot let out one final volley right into the faces of the charging Scots, which had to have killed almost 100 men. But that was not enough to stop the avalanche. Despite all the fire, smoke, and flying bits of metal they had passed through, the Highland Charge had made it across the field. One British observer recalled the scene when they made impact. Making a dreadful huzzah, and even crying, Run, ye dogs! They broke in between the grenadiers of Beryl and Monroe. But these had given their fire according to the general direction, and then parried them with their bayonets. The two cannon on that division were so well served, that when within two yards of them they received a full discharge of canister shot, which made a dreadful havoc. And those who crowded into the opening received a full fire from the center of Bly's regiment, which still increased the number of the slain. Almost 2,500 men in Tartan, with their swords and muskets leveled, slammed with an audible crunch into the 4th and 37th foot, yelling, chopping, shooting, stabbing. Many barely managed to fire their muskets, just wielding them as clubs or throwing them aside and laying about them with their swords. The 4th foot parried and thrust with their bayonets, trying their best to stem the tide. But the Highland Charge just ground into them like a human buzzsaw, with the clansmen blindly hacking and grinding through the smoke and screams and blood. The Highland Charge overwhelmed the fourth foot and the left flank of the 37th. They had achieved a breakthrough, but now the British battle plan came into play. Because Cumberland's second battle line moved forward to take the pressure off the first. Regiments of redcoats hurried into position on the left and right of the great mass of clansmen, forming a horseshoe around the Jacobite forces. They formed their ranks, leveled their muskets, and began to fire. The slaughter was terrible. The Jacobite fighters were blinded by the smoke and turmoil, having to feel their way into the fight. Their bodies fell three or four deep as the survivors climbed over friends and brothers and fathers to close with their enemy. One British soldier remembered their desperation. They hacked at the muskets with such a maniacal fury that far down the line men could hear the iron clang of sword on metal. No one who attacked us escaped alive, for we gave no quarter. Jacobite units tried to form up and return fire to the British regiments that were just blasting into their ranks, and archaeological studies of Culloden show large numbers of musket balls indicating that the Jacobites were shooting back but their uncoordinated fires were no match for the mechanical discipline of the Redcoats. Clan leaders started to go down. Donald Cameron of Lochiel, the first great chief to come out for Charlie, fell with both ankles shattered by canister shot. Alexander McGillivray of Dumglass was wounded in the charge and hacked down by bayonets in the melee, and the place where he fell is marked by a stone on the battlefield today. The Chisholms, the Macleans, the McLaughlins, all disintegrated in the face of mass volley and canister fire, torn to pieces by the flying hail of steel. Colonel Lachlan McLaughlin's body was torn open by a cannonball, and his guts splayed out over his horse's neck. On the left flank, the Jacobites never even closed with the enemy. The MacDonald regiments, angry at being displaced from their position of honor, with a longer distance to cross than the right flank, and slogging through water up to their knees, drew up short to the enemy line. 
They leveled their muskets and exchanged fire with the redcoats, but this was the kind of combat that the British were best at, and their musket fire shredded the Macdonalds. Macdonald of Keppoch, seeing his regiment falter, cried, Oh my God, has it come to this that the children of my own tribe desert me? The proud old chief charged the government lines alone, sword in hand, until he was brought down by multiple bullets. The Duke of Perth tried to lead the Macdonalds into close quarters, claiming that they, they just followed him. He would cast aside his title and rename himself Macdonald, but he too fell with a wound to the arm. On the left and the right, the Scots finally began to crumble. First in onesies and twosies, then in small groups, then in a drove. The Jacobite right began to turn and run as fast as they could from the carnage. They were brought down in scores by the musket and cannon fire. And soon Cumberland released the British cavalry to finish the pursuit. The British cavalry had turned out to be garbage at assaulting a formed line, but they were outstanding at running down a defeated enemy. Lord George, fighting with sword in hand, lost his horse and narrowly missed being cut to pieces. Covered with blood and dirt, he fought his way out of the carnage and ran back to the Jacobite lines, looking for any units that could come and reinforce them. But there were none. Almost all the infantry units had been committed to the attack, first and second lines. The only units left were the French regulars, the Royal Ecossois and the Irish PK. They marched forward, confident and pristine, to try and cover the Jacobite retreat. But as the Royal Ecossois marched forward, they were once again ambushed by the Argyle militia behind the walls of Colwiniac enclosure, which in hindsight the Jacobites really should have secured. Even though John Campbell of Ballamore, the Argyle men's leader, was killed in the skirmish, the Royal Ecossois were forced out onto the open field, right into the path of Hangman Hawley's British cavalry, who rode them down, slashing with swords and shooting with pistols. The Irish PK, on the other hand, fended off the British cavalry on their side of the field long enough to cover the Jacobite retreat. The French regulars did their part in the closing minutes of Culloden. Charlie was trying to rally several of the broken lowland regiments, riding around under fire and urging them to hold up and stand fast, when Colonel O'Sullivan came riding up. He said to Charlie's escort, You see, all is going to pot. You can be of no great succor. So before General Durout, which will soon be, seize upon the prince and take him off. Basically, save Prince Charles while there's still time. But Charlie seemed like he was in a trance. He had watched these men, men who had followed him, trusted him, believed in him, and asked the world who would be king but Charlie, cut to ribbons on the field of Culloden. He drew his sword and told his escort that they would not take him alive. Charlie, what you doing, buddy? The answer was simple. Prince Charles Edward Stuart, seeing the ruin of his army and the death of his cause, was prepared to die in the battlefield of Culloden. Die like a prince, despite later stories to the contrary that he behaved like a coward. But O'Sullivan and his escort forced Charlie to leave the battlefield in safety, literally grabbing his horse's reins and pulling him away. After all, there was no hope for the Jacobite cause ever again if Charles Stuart fell on this day. The Battle of Culloden was over, and the Jacobite army ran. Behind them came the Redcoat Cavalry, thundering down on the desperate clansmen, cutting them down by the score. The British pursuit was led by Hangman Hawley, a man who barely cared about his own soldiers, much less the rebel scum. They charged all the way to Inverness, skewering anything that wore a tartan, killing many innocents along the way. The pursuit lasted until nightfall, 
Behind them, the battlefield of Culloden was a smoking ruin. Highlanders lay piled like bags of meat near the decimated fourth foot, whose losses accounted for almost half the British army's 50 dead and 259 wounded. The Jacobite casualties were massive. Around 1,500 Scots lay stricken in terrible heaps on the bloody moor as the smoke slowly drifted away and the guns lay silent. The Jacobites had impaled themselves on the firepower of British cannons and muskets and the steel of their bayonets. The Highland Charge had failed in the last battle ever fought on British soil. The British were ruthless in victory. Cumberland had ordered that the rebels receive no quarter. There are numerous reports of the Redcoats slaughtering prisoners, bayoneting the wounded, killing every man left squirming and crying on the field. This was in defiance of the accepted laws of war of the time, but those laws only applied to legitimate recognized enemies, so they didn't apply to rebel scum. The result was that very few Jacobite wounded survived the field of Culloden. At least some did, so it wasn't a complete massacre, but it did occur. It is for this, and for his later activities in the Highlands, that William Augustus is remembered in Scotland today as Butcher Cumberland. Major James Wolfe reported that he found the 20-year-old Colonel Charles Fraser of Clan Fraser lying wounded on the field. Hangman Hawley ordered Wolfe to execute Fraser on the spot. When Wolfe refused, Hawley directed another soldier to place his musket against Fraser's head and pull the trigger. But Wolfe was less concerned for the still-retreating survivors of the battle, saying that The rebels, besides their natural inclinations, had orders not to give quarter to our men. We had an opportunity of avenging ourselves for that and many other things, and indeed we did not neglect it, as few Highlanders were made prisoners as possible. Either way, there is no doubt that British behavior on Culloden Battlefield was abominable, and in modern terms would be called a war crime. And worse was to come, because the new order would not forgive or forget those who had rebelled against its authority. The remnants of the Jacobite army assembled in various pockets throughout the highlands. Surprisingly, many were still eager for another fight, and the reinforcements coming in from various quarters gave some Jacobite leaders hope that the cause could live on. They had around 4,000 men remaining under arms. But on April 20th, word came from Prince Charles that the army was to disperse and go home, and its leaders had to see to their own safety. Though some wanted to fight on, this was a fantasy. Their starving, ruined army would have stood no chance against the Redcoat steamroller. It was over. The Jacobite army had been wrecked at Culloden, and Cumberland was triumphant. The Battle of Culloden was a complete and total death blow to the Jacobite cause. People didn't realize this at the time. Many Jacobite leaders remained convinced that they could have carried on the fight, and many British leaders would be hyper-vigilant about a new Jacobite threat emerging from the Highlands. Many of the later atrocities have to be seen in light of this fact. But Culloden was the final stand, and there would never be another great Jacobite uprising. The 45 was in ruins. The New Order, the Hanoverian Dynasty, the Glorious Revolution had won for good. The Jacobite army, really the last Scottish army, dispersed into the Highlands to hide and survive as best they could. Some of its leaders escaped on ships bound for France. Murray, O'Sullivan, and most of the others got away clean. But the Duke of Perth, wounded at Culloden, 
died on the voyage to France. He had been just the nicest guy, a good leader who was never a big part of the command issues, and his brother Lord John Drummond saw to it that he was buried at sea. But there was one leader who had not escaped. Prince Charles Edward Stuart stayed in Scotland until September 1746, five months after Culloden. Not by choice. He was trying to catch a ship to France, the way so many other leaders had already escaped. But Charlie literally missed the boat, and now he was on the run. He would be a wanted man for months, relying on the kindness of Highland strangers to escape from island to beach to mountain to forest. This drama is known as Charlie's Time in the Heather, and it's one of the great sagas of Scottish legend. Cumberland's army was carrying out one of the largest manhunts in history, with thousands of redcoats and Highland militia searching for the fugitive prince. Charlie slipped past British patrols, hid in attics and caves and holes, eaten up by bugs, rained on and hungry and sleepless. The British were always on his trail, often arriving at a hiding place minutes after he left. And through it all, Charles demonstrated the incredible determination and resilience that had made the 45 such a big deal in the first place. Many of these hiding places of Charlie's are now marked by historical markers all over the Western Highlands. One of the most dangerous moments came when Charles was hiding in the Western Isles. British forces had gotten wind of his location. Ships were patrolling the waters, redcoats were everywhere, and the Highland militia were closing in. But one of the militia officers was a secret Jacobite, and he decided to help Charlie escape. To accomplish this, he sent his 23-year-old stepdaughter, a Highland lass named Flora MacDonald. In one of the best-remembered stories of the 45 in Scottish history, Flora disguised Charles as her maid and obtained a boat for their escape to the Isle of Skye. They hid from the redcoats, rode across stormy seas by night, literally dodged bullets and narrowly evaded patrols. Flora MacDonald got Charlie safely, as the song says, over the sea to Skye, and is remembered as one of the greatest heroines in Scottish history. Flora and many other men and women who sheltered or hid Charlie were picked up and questioned, arrested, imprisoned. Their houses were burned and some were raped or murdered, but they refused to betray the Jacobite network that had smuggled their prince to safety. Their loyalty in the face of all this catastrophe was amazing, especially considering there was a 30,000 pound ransom on Charlie's head. The French had been sending ships and even agents to find and rescue Charlie. The whole Jacobite community up to James III himself was terrified for the prince's safety. In late September, Charlie finally caught one of these ships along with some of his remaining refugees including Donald Cameron of Lochiel, who would somehow survive the aftermath of Culloden. They embarked very close to Moidert, where this whole thing began 14 months earlier. Prince Charles had won one of history's biggest, longest games of hide-and-seek. On September 20th, 1746, the French ship weighed anchor and sailed. Charles took one last look as Scotland vanished. He would never return. The 45 was finally, truly, over.
The Jacobite defeat at Culloden and the evacuation of Prince Charles spelled an end to the last great uprising in Scottish history. The 45 was a cataclysmic event, shaking the entire British government to its foundations and causing its greatest crisis since 1688. It was probably the biggest challenge the British political system ever faced, including the American Revolution and the World Wars. Most of Britain cheered the victory. As the news of Culloden spread, church bells rang and bonfires were lit from Edinburgh to London to Glasgow to Derby. The pretender was burned in effigy in the streets. From the Whig point of view, they had been saved from a Catholic tyranny and servitude to the Pope, as well as a puppet of the French and the barbarian Highlanders. Their liberties and their religion had been saved from the forces of backwardness, and progress had been preserved. The Duke of Cumberland was the hero of the hour. But there was also shock and fear. Charles and his rebels had come amazingly close to upending the new order. The lack of government support in both Scotland and England showed the Hanoverian dynasty just how fragile their regime actually was. And the insecurity this close call created would cause a terrible backlash. Cumberland's redcoats didn't just march into the highlands to look for Charlie. Their primary mission was to eradicate what they saw was the source of all this trouble, the rebellious Highland clans. It was time to punish these barbarians for their defiance of King George II and the Glorious Revolution. All throughout the summer and autumn of 1746, the British army carried out barbaric acts of cruelty on the Highlands. The atrocities were a foretaste of British imperial practice around the world. They hunted down fugitives from Culloden, and anyone caught with a weapon of any kind could be killed on the spot. They burned villages and fields. The Redcoats laid waste to entire regions, killed hundreds, and raped untold numbers of women. If many died directly from British hands, even more died from starvation or exposure in the brutal winter of 1746, and others died in prison cells at Carlisle, Edinburgh, and Inverness, or on the gallows, or on the headsman's block. It is possible, even likely, that some of these atrocities were exaggerated, but most weren't. The New Order, the British political system, revealed that behind the rationality, civility, the progress in civilization and enlightenment, there was a darker side. The kind of cultural superiority and willingness to treat people as subhuman that would characterize the British Empire. The worst acts, surprisingly, were not committed by the English, but by lowland Scots. Now, some Scots, like Duncan Forbes and the Earl of Loudoun, openly protested the cruelty and criminality of the ravaging. Duncan Forbes, who had done more than anyone else probably to defeat the 45, was not compensated a cent for all the money he had spent and was shoved aside after the war. But there's no doubt that the ravaging of the Highlands was ordered from the top down, with Cumberland, Hawley, and the other senior commanders directly supervising the atrocities. One general said that, Nothing but fire and sword can cure their cursed, vicious ways of thinking. Though the campaign of retribution was over by winter of 1746, this was not a long-term thing. Its scars lingered for generations. But other punishments were coming. The government had lists of those who had taken part in the rebellion. Most Jacobite leaders had escaped to France, but those who didn't were executed by beheading or hanging. Three notable Scottish leaders were publicly beheaded in London. 
but the vast majority of those taken in arms were deported. The term for the time was transported overseas. For many, their fate would be indentured servitude, essentially slavery for life. Thousands of men, women, and children were transported to the West Indies or to the Americas as punishment for their wicked rebellion. Among those transported was a man named James Colley. In 1746, he vanishes from the local parish books of Elginshire in the Northeast Lowlands and suddenly reappears in Northern Virginia. I have found no record that he was transported, but there's only one reason a, a man in Scot northern Scotland would mysteriously vanish and reappear in Virginia a couple of months later. By the end of his life, he had settled near the Blue Ridge and started a family. 244 years after the 45, his descendant, yours truly, was born. So the history of the 45 is also just a little bit the history of the Unknown Soldiers podcast. The government was still not done. In August 1746, Parliament passed the Proscription Act, the first of a series of laws designed to destroy the clan system. Clan chiefs lost their ancient powers and feudal rights, including their legal authority. Strict weapons control was placed on the highlands, and anyone found violating it could be imprisoned or transported to the colonies. Finally, the Highland Dress Act banned the wearing of the tartan, or the kilt. All this was nothing less than a targeted policy of cultural genocide, designed to eradicate the Highland culture that had caused the New Order so much trouble. The Highland clan system had been dying for a long time, but things really took a nosedive after 1746. Thanks to the new laws, the former feudal obligations between a chief and his people, that two-way relationship, were gone. The chiefs now viewed their territory not as the lands of the clan, but as personal property that needed to be made profitable. They were no longer fathers to their tribe, but landlords to their tenants. Starting in the late 1700s and picking up steam as the 19th century approached, the vast majority of the Highland people would be forced off the land and transported or crammed into tiny villages along the coast. These processes were known as the Highland Clearances, and they finally destroyed the clan world by the late 19th century. The clans were scattered to the winds, to the cities of the lowlands, to America and Australia and Canada and the West Indies. In the Americas, large communities of Highlanders settled in Nova Scotia, Ontario, and North Carolina. Variations of Gaelic were spoken in Canada and in the Carolina upcountry for decades, and some of the world's largest Highland games take place to this day in the western hills of North Carolina. The last fiery cross was lit in Ontario in 1812, calling exiled Highlanders out to fight the American invasion of their new Canadian homeland. The Highland diaspora is across the world, but the Highlands themselves were now bare and vacant. The vast open spaces you see in documentaries and movies today were not always vacant. They were made that way by a cultural genocide, a culture and a way of life, not just the desperate clansmen of Charlie's army, died at Culloden in 1746. Something else was mortally wounded at Culloden, and this was Jacobitism. The Jacobite cause would continue long after 1746, and many people called themselves Jacobites even into the 19th century. 
There's a couple that still call themselves Jacobites today. One Jacobite club in Manchester didn't close until 1892. But the dream had been crushed at Culloden, and most people now agreed with James III. It was over. It was over for good. The people who had looked to Jacobitism for salvation now looked somewhere else. Religiously, the Scottish Episcopalian Church was suppressed after the 45, since everyone knew that it was the bedrock of Jacobite support. The, the Episcopalians were persecuted for decades, and by the 19th century, only a remnant of a remnant were left. The Catholics, for their part, worked for their religious freedoms peacefully through the system, and Catholic emancipation would be passed in Britain in 1829. New challenges to the dominance of the Anglican Church would come not from the Jacobites, but from the rising Methodist and Baptist movements, both of which were explicitly anti-Jacobite. Over the next few decades, Scotland was fully integrated into the new order. The Act of Union stopped being a hated new thing and just became accepted as a settled fact. And the years after the 45 were some of the most prosperous and energetic times in Scottish history, unless you were a Highlander or an Episcopalian. This is when the lowlands flourished. This was the era of the Scottish Enlightenment, of David Hume and Adam Smith and Robert Burns and Joseph Black and William Cullen, men who oversaw advances in literature, science, philosophy, and medicine. The lowlands flourished with art, architecture, and learning, and the cities began to boom as the wealth of the British Empire poured in. For the Highlands, it was a disaster, but the period after the 45 was honestly the Scottish cultural golden age. Scotland advanced into the modern world as a proud member and partner in the United Kingdom. And nothing demonstrated this more than the Highland regiments of the British Army. While Highland units had donned the red coat during the 45, serious army recruitment in the Highlands began during the Seven Years' War. Since soldiers in the Highland regiments were actually allowed to wear the plaid, to wear the tartan, this became a way for them to fulfill the martial warrior impulse of their ancestors. The bagpipes and the kilt would be seen again on the battlefield, but this time under the Union Jack on battlefields like Quebec and Saratoga and Waterloo in India and Africa. It would not be the last time the British conquered a people they deemed a warrior race and then recruited them to fight for the empire. Irish nationalism survived as well, but after the 45, the dream of a Stuart king died. From that point on, the Irish would no longer look to the Stuarts for their salvation, but they would dream of a republic, a dream that would fail in 1798 and succeed in 1922. So the nationalism that had fueled the Jacobite cause in Scotland and Ireland was now a non-issue. Politics and economics moved on as well. Many Tories had long been closet Jacobites, but when they came to power legally in 1760, when King George III came to the throne, this meant that no one needed to turn to the Jacobites because they were shut out of politics. There was no more dangerous fifth column inside the British political elite. Everyone knew that they now had a shot at power. The economic discontent, on the other hand, would not go away. Jacobitism had been a challenge to capitalism from the right, from the old feudal aristocracy. But the new challenges to capitalism in the 19th century would come from socialism, from the left. But that's a totally different story. So Jacobitism lost most of its core constituencies after the 45. The Highlands and the Episcopalians were destroyed. 
The Scots and the Tories moved on, in their minds if not their hearts. The Catholics, the Irish, the religiously discontented, and the working class found other channels for their causes. All that were left were the Stuarts themselves. Charles Edward Stuart returned to France, battered but ready to try again. No dice. The French kicked Charlie out when they made peace with Britain in 1748. The French were done trying to launch a big Jacobite uprising. It was just not paying off. Charles was furious, and he was even more furious when he learned what his father had done in the meantime. James III had arranged for the Pope to make Charlie's younger brother Henry a cardinal in the Catholic Church. Henry was all of 22 years old, but that was just how the church rolled back then. Charlie was so mad because now Henry could never have legitimate children. This placed the burden of continuing the Stuart line solely on Charles' shoulders. It was a sign that James and Henry had both given up. But Charlie never gave up. Never, never, never. He wandered Europe incognito, even visited England in disguise in 1750, and converted to Anglicanism, which, if he'd done that much earlier, the 45 might have been a success. He lived with his mistress, Clementina Walkinshaw, and she bore his daughter Charlotte, the only living child the prince would ever have. Charles refused to ever see his father again no matter how many painful letters the pretender wrote to his beloved Carluccio, his son and heir. I think part of it was anger, but part of it was guilt. Guilt that he couldn't fulfill their family's destiny, and shame that he had failed, just like his father had. As the reality of his situation came home, and Jacobite prospects grew slimmer every year, Charlie's personality collapsed and his health declined. He took to heavy drinking and became angry and bitter. In his later years, the prince was drinking six bottles of wine a day, which, wow, okay, that, that's a lot, even for a famously boozy time period. Now, this is one of the harder parts of the story to stomach. When Charlie got drunk, he got angry. When this happened, see, Charlie beat his women. He was an abuser. When she just couldn't take it anymore, Clementina Walkinshaw took Charlotte and ran in 1760. It's hard to think that this guy, who many of you are probably rooting for at least a little bit, could be such a creep. Like you, hopefully, I'm disgusted by spousal abuse in all its forms, and there's no excuse for what Charlie did. But this is what happens, isn't it? Haven't we seen this in other contexts? The bitter old man whose best days were in his youth, who's seen his dreams destroyed, who always had a volatile personality, and declines into alcohol, anger, and bitterness. This is something I think we can all comprehend, if never condone, excuse, or accept. Multiple Jacobites in exile tried to shake Charlie out of his impotent rage, but he drove them all away. His brother, his father, his lover... He became estranged from O'Sullivan and his Irish followers. Even Lord George, of all people, tried to reach out in the years after Culloden, trying to reconcile with the prince, but Charlie angrily refused to see him, blaming his general for everything that had gone wrong, especially the decision at Derby. By the 1760s and 1770s, this was Charles Edward Stuart, a bitter, drunk, increasingly obese and reclusive wife-beater, who most of Europe saw as an embarrassment. When James finally passed away in 1766, the Pope refused to recognize Charles as the king in exile. 
He was briefly married to an Austrian noblewoman, but then he beat her too, and she left in 1780. As the American Revolution was going on an ocean away, Charlie was drunk, angry, screaming outside a convent in Florence, demanding to see his wife. He was a wreck of a human being, the shell of a man that had once been Bonnie Prince Charlie. The world had passed him by, and he knew it. Charles died of a stroke in Rome on January 30th, 1788, four months after the signing of the U.S. Constitution, which, funny story, at some points in the American Revolution, people did propose to bring Charles over to America and be the king of a new American kingdom, but you can tell nobody was really interested in that. When he died, he was attended only by his daughter Charlotte. He had driven everyone else away. I have no way of proving this, but I'd bet, if you asked him, that he wished he'd never left the battlefield at Culloden, that maybe he should have died there in the end. It would have kept him 40 from 43 more years of angry, bitter disappointment from the damage he did to everyone around him and everyone he loved. He was a casualty of the 45, even if he never admitted it to himself. There was one last Stuart. Charlie's younger brother Henry lived on as a Catholic cardinal in Rome, providing financial assistance and generally looking out for the remaining Jacobites in exile. But there were fewer of them as time went on. They were a dying breed. When Henry Stuart died in 1807, the last of his line, the book was closed on the house of Stuart. James, Charlie, and Henry all lie together in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the final resting place of the exiled kings. The Jacobite cause was dead. But then, somehow, it wasn't. Seven years after the last Stuart died, in 1814, Sir Walter Scott published a novel called Waverly. It was unlike anything that had been written before. The protagonist is a young English gentleman named Edward Waverley, one of the most remarkably stupid main characters in all of literary history. Waverley travels to Scotland on the eve of the 45, and is inspired by the courage and passion of a Highland chief and his lovely sister to join the noble but doomed Jacobite cause. Waverley's divided loyalties are symbolized when he falls into a love triangle with two women, Rose, the sensible, blushing young lowland woman, and Flora, the fiery, passionate Highland lass. Besides the fact that Prince Charles gives Waverly romantic advice, and as we've seen, Charles Edward Stewart is the last person from which anyone should get romantic advice, the clear contrast between these two women is a choice between the old Scotland and the new, the Scotland that was lost by 1814, and the Scotland that was yet to come. Side note, I have read Waverly, and it's not as dry as you might think for a book published in 1814. It's actually a pretty decent read. I enjoyed it. But it's noteworthy that this book never could have been published in, say, 1764 or even 1794. Memories were still too fresh. The threat of invasion and Jacobitism was too real. But by 1814, the Stuarts were dead. The Jacobites were gone. And it was safe to write this story now. 
Waverly was a smash hit. It was the Harry Potter of its day. Not only was it, did it single-handedly invent the historical novel genre, and not only was it the first international bestseller, praised and beloved by audiences across Europe and America, it turned out to be a model for the historical romantic novel worldwide, inspiring the likes of James Fenimore Cooper in America, Victor Hugo in France, and Leo Tolstoy in Russia. Scott released more novels, many of which focused on Scotland and the Jacobite cause, all of which romanticized the past, the importance of strong emotion and beauty and passion that the literary world was lacking in the 1810s. Waverley was one of the founding texts of romantic literature, of the romantic movement. But Waverley also changed how people saw the past. The Highlanders had been seen as barbarians, rebels, nearly subhuman. But now they were seen as noble savages whose culture and ways of life were worth preserving. Sir Walter Scott became the voice of the Highlanders, and he posed the radical notion that we can move forward into the modern world without forgetting and rejecting the past. We can let it be part of us. The publication of Waverley started a remarkable transformation. The plaid, tartan, and kilt, banned until 1782, was now everywhere, in every shop window and in every fashion. The bagpipes wailed from every street corner of Edinburgh. Gaelic, ancient Scottish poetry, the beauty and cultural treasures of the Highlands were suddenly the rage of London, even as the actual Highlanders were being driven from their homes in the clearances. It was Walter Scott and his revival of an almost forgotten world that turned Highland culture into Scottish culture, that put the tartan and the bagpipes and the claymore into our vision of what Scotland is. One of the poorest and most despised ways of life in Europe had become one of the most celebrated. All this culminated in 1822, when King George IV made the first ever royal visit to Scotland by a sitting monarch since the Glorious Revolution. The visit was organized and stage managed by Sir Walter Scott, who counted the king among his many readers and fans. The ceremonies were covered in tartan, accompanied by bagpipes, and saturated with Scottish and especially Highland culture. Even the Fiery Cross made an appearance. There were mock battles. Hundreds of thousands of Scots, almost a seventh of the country's population, came to the procession. The clan chiefs came to pay attendance. Scottish clan dances were performed. George IV himself dressed and was painted in full Highland regalia and he positively beamed when Scott told him that he could be a heroic figure, just like Bonnie Prince Charlie. Guys, what the heck? This is a Hanoverian king, the great-grandson of George II, great-nephew of Butcher Cumberland. Literally textbook cultural appropriation. The descendants of the oppressors adopting the image of the oppressed. The royal visit of 1822 was an extremely sanitized, sterilized, wholesome, spin on actual Highland culture and traditions. Even Queen Victoria, a few decades later, would say something like, well, I, I would have been a Jacobite back then. No, you wouldn't. You're a Hanoverian. They were literally fighting against your family. But it just shows how much the world had changed. Waverly and the later stories did for the Jacobite cause what Gone with the Wind helped do for the Confederate cause to turn it into a romantic legend, divorced from the reality of what actually went down. The places, the stories, the songs became a part of the Scottish DNA. 
Culloden became a pilgrimage site, and schoolchildren were brought up with tales of their brave ancestors who came to Glenfinnan, who fought at Preston Pans, who died at Culloden. Bonnie Prince Charlie became a national hero, a rallying cry for Scottish identity and patriotism, and there are plaques and place names and paintings and mementos all over Scotland today to celebrate his life. Does he deserve it? Doesn't matter. The Scots needed a hero when they had one. They didn't remember the drunken, wife-beating wreck that Charles had been at the end. They remembered him as a myth, a legend, the noble young hero who had come only for a moment in history to lead Scotland in her final bid for independence, even if Charlie was never actually fighting for Scottish independence. Just look at how people saw his nemesis, the Duke of Cumberland. As Charlie's reputation rose, Cumberland's fell, from being a military hero to being a disgraceful villain, Butcher Cumberland. Many of his statues across Britain were publicly removed in the 1800s, proving that statue removal is not just a 21st century phenomenon. Cumberland may have won the battle, and the war, but Charlie won the stories and the songs. He won the legend, and this was Bonnie Prince Charlie's last and greatest victory. The mythology of the 45 erased inconvenient facts. It portrayed the struggle as a Scottish independence movement, when it never really was. It perpetuated the myth that the Highlanders had been the majority of the rebels, when the Lowlanders were the majority of the army by the Battle of Culloden. It played up the Catholicism of certain Highland clans, ignoring that most of the Scottish Jacobites were Protestants. And it focused on Culloden as the decisive point of the war, when the decision at Derby is the real turning point of the conflict. The battle is always the climax of any great story, and the story of the 45 turned the Battle of Culloden into the cornerstone of the myth. All the rough edges were filed off the real story of the 45 as history was converted into an epic tragedy. The bagpipes and the kilt and Gaelic and the mystical highlands reign supreme at cultural memory. To this day, thousands of songs, novels, TV shows, movies, all of it, keep the flame of the Jacobite cause alive. This was the creation of the modern, mythical Scotland, the Scotland that we know today. The result of the romance, starting from Waverley and moving on from there, that came from Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 45. Because even as Scotland forged ahead into the modern world, even as its culture became a global phenomenon, they could never help but look back. They could never shake the feeling that they had lost something, some fragment of who they were as a people, as a culture, as a nation, that a part of their identity was gone forever. Some part of Scotland had died, and it lay beneath the stones of Culloden. So guys, what does it all mean? What's the point? Why should you care? It's time to wrap up my first series. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed telling you about it. Like I said when I introduced this series a few weeks ago, it's not the most obscure thing I could think of. But most Americans don't know this story, at least not as it really happened. And I think it needed to be told. Plus, if you come along with this far with me through something that might be a little familiar, Hopefully you'll trust me later on, when we get to much less familiar stuff. 
So what can we take away from the story of the Jacobite cause, the Stuart dynasty, and the 45? What are the big things we can talk about to sum this story up? First, why did the Jacobites lose and why did the New Order win? That was the real thing I was trying to explain throughout this entire series, and I think I've made that pretty clear. But one big thing. From the moment that James II was sent into exile in the Glorious Revolution, the Stuarts and their supporters were fighting an uphill battle. The New Order represented things that most English people believed in. The Protestant supremacy, government by consent, and economic prosperity. It had solutions to the divisions of Britain that the Stuarts had failed to resolve. Even if those solutions were imposed by force, they were solutions. The Jacobite supporters were always on the fringes. Certain parts of Scotland and Ireland, certain parts of the ruling class, certain minority religious groups. They were always on the outside looking in. They had a diversity of reasons to support the Jacobite cause, but that very diversity caused tension. As we saw with the arguments within the high command, all the tensions about the, what the war was supposed to accomplish helped sink the cause in the end. The new order had an inherent strength in that it imposed unity, even a negative unity, but still unity. The Jacobite cause championed a decentralized, diverse group of viewpoints, but this very group of viewpoints was what ended up crippling the Jacobite cause. The very divisions that created the Jacobite cause also killed it. They were baked in from the beginning. One of the biggest things that always hurt the Jacobites was the lack of English Jacobite support. Most people believe that if Charlie couldn't win majority support in the largest part of the United Kingdom, that he couldn't succeed. And ultimately, they were right. This national division between the English, the Scots, and the Irish was one of the biggest things that was always cutting the legs out from under the Jacobite cause. And nowhere did this big division become clearer than in the behavior of the Scottish Jacobites. Murray, Perth, Lord Elko, all of them were only concerned with Scottish autonomy and possibly independence without seeing the big picture. This narrow worldview blinded them to the reality of their situation. There was no possibility of Scottish independence without a Stuart on the throne of England as well. As long as the Hanoverian dynasty survived on the British mainland, they would do whatever it took to snuff out an independent Scotland. For the Scots, the road to freedom lay through London, but they just couldn't see that. When Cumberland showed up to Culloden on April 16, 1746, he had English, Scots, and Irish all represented in large numbers in his army. Charlie's army was like 95% Scottish. It wasn't a battle between the English and the Scottish necessarily, but a battle between Union and the Scots. And against that combination the Scots lost. But putting aside the smaller uprisings, there were two really big attempts the Stuarts made to return to overturn the new order. These were the 15 and the 45. And what's weird is that despite the 15 having more factors in its favor, large-scale English support, broader Scottish support, the new regime still being very weak, it was the 45 that came the closest to success. And for the most part, this came down to leadership. The Earl of Mar and Prince Charles could not have been more different, and Charlie did more with a little than Mar did with a lot. If the Jacobite cause was ever going to succeed, Charlie was going to be the one to make that happen. The 45 faced the overwhelming force of the British state from the moment it began, and it did remarkably well in spite of that. But eventually, given enough time and breathing room, 
The New Order was going to get back on its feet and destroy Charlie's uprising, and that was exactly what ended up happening. The economic and military logic was just against the Jacobites from the beginning. But could that logic have been defied? I think it could have. I think there were two turning points in the 45 that really sealed the deal, and victory was possible, even if it wasn't likely before they came about. We talked about how Preston Pans basically cleared Scotland and gave the Jacobites a chance to make a strategic decision. What do we do next? Do we secure Scotland or invade England? Whether or not they should have invaded England is an open question. There's still a lot of debate. But the first big turning point came with the decision at Derby, with the decision to turn back instead of attacking London. And sure, Murray might have been right. Charlie might not have succeeded if they kept going on to London. But knowing what we know, whatever happened if they made that decision, it couldn't have been worse than Culloden, could it? And that was really their only chance to win the war quickly before the new order could get its material and financial resources together and destroy them. But the second decision, the second turning point, was the decision to retreat into the highlands after Falkirk. This cut the Jacobites off from their main sources of support in the Northeast Lowlands and from the French help coming in to the ports and forced them to split up their army, allowing Cumberland to obliterate the main force at Culloden. This decision, if the decision at Derby was the point where the Jacobites started to lose, the decision to retreat into the highlands was the point where that became, I think, inevitable. That decision ultimately cost them the war. The 45 was lost long before Culloden, even if Charlie screwed the pooch pretty hard that day. But it could have won. It could have succeeded. There were points where people made decisions that changed history. If the new order had been a little shakier, if different decisions had been made at certain points, everything could have been different. So what could have happened if the 45 succeeded? Think about when this occurs, which is why I'm always saying, hey, here's what's going on in the world right now, to put stuff into its place. This is 30 years before the American Revolution, over 40 years before the French Revolution. This is before the British Empire has really gotten rolling. This is a few decades before the Industrial Revolution begins. How much of that could have been derailed or permanently changed by a Stuart Restoration, even a small change? By a regime that stood against capitalist interests, that wanted to abolish the standing army, that wanted to break the United Kingdom back up into separate kingdoms, that was allied with the French. I mean, when we look at it that way, we realize what a huge impact Britain has had on the modern world. Could Charles III have kept America under the British flag when George III couldn't? If the American Revolution does occur, what happens if the French never help the rebels? Without the power and financial capital of the new order, would the Industrial Revolution have started in France or Germany instead of Britain? Without massive wars with Britain to create all those debts, how would the French Revolution have come about if it came about at all? And with no imperial ambitions, with no massive military and financial machine to launch the British Empire into the stratosphere, would the British have ever conquered India or Africa or built the cities of Singapore and Hong Kong? All of that could have been undone if Prince Charles had been a little more persuasive or had one letter from one English Jacobite leader in his hand at Derby. Any number of things could have changed the course of events on the road to Derby and changed the future of the world forever. 
Think about the fact that the brutal imperial tactics of divide and conquer and cultural genocide that the British Empire used in the Highlands would later be put into practice worldwide. The Scots and the Irish were the first indigenous peoples to feel the boot of the British Empire. They were the guinea pigs for British imperialism. Charlie and his army didn't know it, and they never would have thought about it this way. But in a sense, they were fighting for the Indians, the Africans, the Aborigines as well. This was never a battle about thrones. It was a struggle between two different versions of the future, about what kind of nation Britain would be, if it would even be Britain and not separate England and Scotland. The United Kingdom of Great Britain that we know today, the British Empire that was one of the single most important forces in world history, was not a foregone conclusion. It was not preordained. History doesn't flow in one direction, unstoppable, unalterable. Things could have been different. And this leads me to my final point. The leaders weren't the only ones making those decisions. Thousands, even millions of people made their own choices to join or support one side or the other, or to stay home. Would a few more English volunteers at Manchester or Derby have helped Charlie convince his generals? Would one woman waving a flag at the right time have changed someone's mind? Would a few more Highlanders joining the ranks have given them the strength to push on? But they didn't have to change the big things. They could change the little ones. They could hide Prince Charlie in the heather or give him away. They could bring out a few men for the cause or convince a few men to stay home. They could take a life or save it. They could take part in history or stand by and watch the armies march on. And that too meant they were part of history. That was a choice that affected everything. Every single one of these people mattered. From the men who would be king to the men, women, and children whose choices could have made them king. They all mattered. Their lives mattered. The decisions they made mattered. Let's imagine a scenario. Suppose my ancestor, James Colley, was wounded on that battlefield at Culloden. I have no way of knowing what he was up to at the time, so it is a possibility. Maybe one red coat stands above that wounded man with a choice to kill him with the bayonet or to spare him. And on that day of Culloden, that was a choice that was within his power. But by killing James Colley, how many more generations would he have destroyed? How much would he have ruined? He would have wiped out me, my mom, my ancestors, everyone who came before me. He would have changed all your lives in a tiny way because you wouldn't be listening to me right now. That one redcoat, just a poor kid from the back streets of London, maybe might have made a choice, shown some mercy, and spared James Colley's life. Maybe this exact scenario didn't occur, but something like it occurred hundreds and thousands of times that day on the battlefield of Culloden. Maybe it meant nothing to the world, but it meant everything to them. They mattered, and so do you. Yes, you. You. You matter. You are not irrelevant. The decisions you make matter. Your story matters. History isn't just made by the big people with big names, the big battles, the big dates. It's a constant process of formation by the millions and billions of people who live their lives, making the millions and billions of choices that affect the rest of the world every second of every minute of every day. We are all part of it, even if you don't think you're important. We all matter, and they all mattered, even if we never knew their names. Even if, to us today, they are still unknown soldiers. 
Thank you all so, so much for coming with me to the end of this story. Just by listening, you support me more than you've ever known. You keep me writing and you keep me talking. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies, even if they're filthy redcoats, because those guys speak English mostly too. I will have all my sources and some other 45-related stuff available on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to read more about this subject, I'll have a couple of books that I pick out that I recommend over the others. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod if you have any questions about anything I've talked about. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. What do you think about the 45? And just as importantly, what do you want to hear about? Drop me a line, message me, whatever you need to do, I am here for it. But we are not quite done with the 45. I have a couple more tidbits from this story to tell you about within two short rounds for the price of one. On Monday, I need to talk about some incredible people that have been in our story the whole time. I just haven't given them the attention they deserve. They're the women of the 45. That same day, we're going to meet a Highland clan chief. In particular, one of the most criminal, dubious, infamous Highland clan chiefs of all time. A key figure in the 15 and the 45, the last man to be publicly beheaded in Great Britain. Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, the chief of Clan Fraser. So keep an eye out for the women of the 45 and the lies of Lord Lovett. Next week on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 